Hey, everybody. Welcome to Match of the Year podcast. I'm Chris Garcia, your host. Today, we're not just looking at one match. We're looking at a series of matches. And there's a reason for that. Uh, One of them did win Match of the Year. But it's a series of matches from 1982 and 3 that redefined what professional wrestling could do in many ways. Uh, There are some people who said that it was the greatest series of matches in history. There are some people who believe that it ruined wrestling in a lot of ways. Uh, It also happened to produce the first five-star match from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Happened in Japan. The feud also came over to the U.S., Madison Square Garden, and I believe the Spectrum. And that is Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid. Let's set the table a bit on Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask was Satoru Sayama, and he was a... had a martial arts background, trained, of course, I believe in the New Japan Dojo, and then went to... was sent to England, where he competed, I believe, as Sammy Lee. Had some good matches, I believe, with uh, Mark Rollerball Rocco very early in his career. He, I don't know for sure if he ever wrestled either Dynamite Kid or Davy Boy Smith when he was in England. I don't know for certain. I know he wrestled a lot of sort of the world of sports guys at that point who were out there, but I don't know if he ever met either of those two. He certainly wrestled Steve Wright, whose son Alex Wright was a wonderful junior heavyweight in the mid to late 90s. Uh, I wonder whatever happened to him, because he was pretty good. He then went to Mexico, but at that point you still had the occasional match from El Santo going on in the in the country. You still had Babyface, one of my favorites. He had sort of a bunch of guys that he would have worked with. I think the Brazo, Brazo de Plata was already working too. But you had a lot of guys who were sort of it was a very good time to be a Lucha Libre wrestler. The trios match, I believe, was just starting to take over in popularity. You know, we sort of today think that trios wrestling is sort of the the thing, and it really wasn't that long ago that trios became this big deal. I want to say it was the early 80s. Maybe it was the late 70s. Uh, sadly, my Lucha knowledge is not that great. But he did work there, and then he came back to Japan, and they wanted to give him a gimmick. New Japan in particular is really good about this. They will come up with a wrestler and then they'll send them out. Uh, Kiji Yamada, who would later become Jushin Liger. Uh, they did that with him. They sent him to Calgary and he appeared, I think, uh, in Florida. And they brought him back as Jushin Liger. Uh, he went out as Yamada. He came in as Liger. Uh, the Great Muda. Uh, Kiji Muda uh, wrestled around New Japan. They sent him to Florida and I think the Central States as well. And when he came back, he was the Great Muda. So you have these sort of idea that once they go, they've gained this international experience, they can come back and be stars. They gave him Tiger Mask. And Tiger Mask had been a show in the late 60s, early 70s. It had been a cartoon and I think a manga as well. And he was a wrestler who happened to wear a Tiger Mask. Uh, so they gave him this gimmick. And one of the thing, ideas was to appeal to kids. And he certainly did. So that's where you had Satoru Sayama. He was super fast. He was... It would not be fair to say he was overly stiff. But he did kick a little face occasionally. 
So you have Sayama, who's this sort of combination martial artist wrestler who is incredibly fast. There are two interesting notes here about Dynamite, and these will definitely become important later. First is that when he started, he was a super skinny kid. He was like 160 or something. Incredibly talented, very fast, very tough guy. Uh, When he was in Calgary, he was introduced to steroids by the Junkyard Dog and to speed by our good friend Jake the Snake Roberts. Big surprise. But that would become very important later. He was somewhat difficult to work with. The drugs was part of that. But people... He would have great matches, but particularly management had issues with him, which would very much affect his career later on. So you had these two guys who were, in many ways, head and shoulders above the rest. You had Tiger Mask, who was super fast, martial arts, uh, flashy. You had Dynamite Kid, flashy, but with... I would argue a better grounding in what a traditional wrestling match was. And when you get those two elements, when you have solid tradition who is willing to go above and you have this sort of next step guy and you put them together, you end up with something spectacular. And that happened all throughout this feud. Tiger Mask's debut as Tiger Mask was against Dynamite Kid, and they had a spectacular match. I've put together, you'll notice uh, if you look at the page, I've put together a list, a a YouTube playlist of as many Tiger Mask matches as I can find. And so just go through that. There's no bad... Well, there might be a couple of minor stinkers, but... Every time Dynamite and Tiger Mask got together, they had amazing matches. I believe the match at one match of the year was their third major New Japan singles match. And I want to say it was also after their uh, Madison Square Garden match. And instantly you notice some differences between then and now that are really important. Uh, Then the ropes were looser. So doing things like springboards and so forth, not easy. Uh, You'll actually see if you watch the Madison Square Garden match between Dynamite and Tiger Mask, the ropes are completely slack. Um, The New Japan one, they're still pretty slack, but they're not like hanging down. Second thing you notice is they get out there and they work at the pace we today think is the standard working pace. This is something that you, if you watch WWF in the late 70s, early 80s, if you watch New Japan up until about 86, 85, 86, particularly if you watch All Japan, Anytime up until probably about 88, with the exception of second Tiger Mask. We'll get to that in a bit. <clears throat> You'll notice that they're very slow. It's much more methodical. These guys are working at pace we notice today. And that's a really important aspect of this match being great. It's the power of working a match with greater speed. And at this point, junior heavyweights weren't flyers. They were typically ground-based wrestlers. Danny Hodge in the U.S. is sort of their, I don't want to say their building block, but he was much the inspiration for a lot of what uh, junior heavyweights were at that point. Uh, Tatsumi Fujinami was one of the best junior heavyweights in the world. He had started, I think at this point, he was just starting to move up into the heavyweight ranks. And he was very ground-based early on. So you had these ground-based 
pros who are working in with smaller groups. And here comes Sayama and T- Dynamite, who could work ground. And Dynamite Kid working ground-based is impressive. There are a few videos of him out there uh, in his particularly early days in uh, Calgary where you'll see that Dynamite was great on the mat. He was actually, he knew how to work. He wasn't a great amateur style wrestler, but he knew, he knew how to make a hold work. And that's a really important aspect. If you can get, you know, if you can make a head, simple head scissors into something the crowd cares about, that is a skill. And he could do that. So you had these two very impressive wrestlers working in this new style that was really fast. And the best example of this happens early in this, um, the match of the year, I uh, believe that was August 5th, 1983, where they do the classic headlock into a hammerlock into a drop toe hold. We talked about this on the last uh, podcast about uh, Flair Michaels, how theirs wasn't fluid or crisp. With Tiger Mask and Dynamite, it's super fluid. It's super crisp. It's super fast. It's It more than anything tells you that what they're doing is the next thing that wrestling is going to be. They're taking a traditional sequence and they're just ramping it up to the next level. They're doing it super fast. I can't say I've seen anyone even today do it nearly as quickly as those guys did. And it works. Sayama's offense is both kick-based, particularly jumping kicks, spin kicks, but it's, of course, a flying offense. And he used the flying body press all over the place. There's one great moment where uh, he goes for a flying body press on dynamite and ends up uh, dynamite ducks and he ends up going into the ropes on the other side and just bouncing off. That's a spot someone needs to bring back. Although you might not be able to do it with tent with tight ropes. It might actually be uh, dangerous, but uh, he did things like the, you know, we think of the six one nine and just to turn around, he did that. That was, I think he was the first person in the, in Japan to do that. That might not be a hundred percent right. Neil Moskros might've done it, but I know for a fact, he very much popularized it. He did a thing called the, I, nowadays we would call it almost the flying space tiger drop where you do a cartwheel and then you end up going over the top rope in a body press onto the guy outside. He did it for the first time, I think in their match in late 82, but he definitely did it in this match and it looks great. The speed with which they're doing things at that point would have been over a lot of audiences' heads. And if you watch the the Madison Square Garden match between the two, it shows that they're sort of working beyond the capability of the crowd to get into. And when you watch a slightly slower match from Tiger Mask uh, in the U.S., uh, let's say Tiger Mask versus Eddie Gilbert, great match, actually, um, it's slower and they get more out of the crowd uh, in a traditional sense, whereas the spectacular flying sense of the Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid match in Madison Square Garden uh, definitely also hit the crowd in a different way. You've got two wrestlers who are at the top of their game, and Dynamite Kid is no slouch. He is not simply a springboard for Siama to bounce off of. There are great moments where Dynamite absolutely rules this match. One, he does the snap suplex that might be the fastest I've ever seen. Just 
brutal. Uh, he gives, you know, his diving headbutt, which uh, sadly may have shortened his career by using that on a regular basis. Uh, very, very, it's a very, very painful move. He takes huge bumps, just gigantic bumps. Uh, he takes one bump from inside the ring. I want to say it was on a, a jumping spin kick. And he takes the shot and he literally flies over the top rope to the outside without hitting the apron. Wow. Just amazing. And these guys are working this match at a breakneck pace. It's just ridiculous how fast these guys are going. And the whole way through, I think it's a 17-minute match. And just super solid and fast. Everything Tiger Mask does is crisp. Everything Dynamite does is not only crisp, but it looks forceful. And that's something that happens in a lot of Lucha matches is, yeah, they'll have the Christmas, they'll have the flying, they'll have the fluidity, but they won't have this sort of, I don't want to say intensity, but there's this sort of almost slack nature of it, um, that it doesn't look like they're putting a lot into the holds and there's no real struggle to get out of them. It's just, this is what happens in the match. And that didn't happen with Dynamite in any of their matches. He looks so good. You think the whole way through he's going to be the superstar, yet he is, in many ways, this was, yeah, the coming out for Tiger Mask, but Dynamite Kid, his career was made by these matches. It showed that someone of his size could get snapped up by the WWF at that point. The match goes on. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. I don't think we see a tiger suplex. That's the double chicken wing, also called the double chicken wing suplex. But Tiger Mask, of course, one of the innovators of that. Just solid work everywhere you go. These guys got it. They understood how a match works. And a kid watching this match today who, you know, is only familiar with uh, WWF would see this and would understand what was going on and be able to follow it. And that's really the key. Uh, we've had so much evolution in wrestling and almost all of it can trace its roots back to Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid. There are so many examples of how this match is influential. If you look at something like Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko from the 90s, you see all sorts of marks of uh, this match there. And with Dynamite's role being played by Dean, who was providing the basis of the match, and all the f flying and, you know, greatness... <laughs> Provided by Eddie. Just amazing how similar these those the ECW feud between those two and the uh, New Japan matches between Dynamite and Tiger Mask are. Hundreds of wrestlers, literally, I couldn't list them all, were influenced by this match and by Tiger Mask in particular. Not to say that Dynamite Kid didn't influence his things, but, you know, if you look at Tiger Mask, he led to Jushin Liger. Great Muda. Uh, guys who you would never sort of think would be like him, like John Kronos and uh, Perry Saturn. I will absolutely say that we had a generation that grew up worshipping guys like Liger who don't realize how much of Liger's wrestling DNA came from Tiger Mask. Now, Dynamite Kid himself, hugely influential. Chris Benoit is the most obvious choice. Uh, but if you ask a lot of guys who started watching in the 80s, almost all of them will list the British Bulldogs as a major, major influence on them. And I would argue that, with very few exceptions, English wrestlers of the last 10 years, uh, Zack Sabre Jr. is the one I'm 
thinking of specifically are very much trying to emulate Dynamite Kid. And in some cases, without really having been around during his heyday or even while he was working at all. One of the reasons for that is that we tend to forget that Dynamite Kid was hugely influential, even though he was the less big star of his classic tag team, because he was the one doing the things that everyone remembers and somehow gets attributed to Davy Boy Smith. Now we've got to talk about the hard stuff. Let's talk about drugs. Dynamite Kid's appetite for drugs was apparently voracious. Uh, speed, cocaine, all sorts of things. It led to, one, problems with promoters. Two, uh, his wife has accused him of beating her and, you know, I have, and threatening her with a gun and other various things. I have no doubt that that's probably true. The problems of drugs and wrestling are, are legendary. I mean, you can look at uh, some of the amazing careers that have been lost because of drugs. Gino Hernandez is one. I argue he was every bit as charismatic as Ric Flair, was a very good worker and probably would have had a big run in the late 80s, early 90s had he survived. Uh, the Von Erich family, torn apart by drugs. Man, expectations. So many careers just ruined. Um, some folks have pointed to Eddie Guerrero uh, as, you know, his, though he had cleaned himself up, uh, the damage had already been done. The reality of wrestling is, if you are a wrestler, you are going to be using drugs. It just, it's just a fact. Most of them are hopefully legal drugs, but when you put your body through that much punishment and no one in their career up to that point had put their body through as much as Dynamite Kid had, you know, the diving headbutt, the class, he did a classic move. I can't remember against who, but I saw it and I went, oh my God. Uh, he did a splash from the top rope to the floor and he blew up both his knees and he finished the match. You can't put your body through that and not expect to need drugs, legal and illegal. And in a way, it's a shortcut because what what we sort of know now, or at least we think we know and want to believe, is that you can work a style that is less spectacular and still get spectacular results. Um, the best example of that, for my, for my mind, is Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle is today is as good a wrestler as he was... 10 years ago when he was having just cutting edge matches uh, with everyone all over the place, Benoit, uh, Eddie, you name it. He had a great match with them, but it wasn't a super damaging style. It was, it was a damaging style. When he got to TNA, he did a slightly more reckless, slightly more damaging style. And naturally you're going to start to break down by that. And, you know, probably, did a little more stuff than we think he did. We know about the drunk driving stuff, but there's there's thought that and rumor that he's into way harder stuff than that to deal with his pain. This years of working a very solid style, but he is to a degree he has changed his working style that is not that is no less effective to the audience, but is less 
damaging to himself. And that's really key. Once you can get that, if you can come up with a way to do a match that is still spectacular, but is not necessarily, I don't want to say, that is not necessarily damaging to you, that's the way to go. And big ups to him, to Dynamite, for putting himself through that. It sucks that he had to go through so much hell. He's in a wheelchair now. The drugs were a terrible thing. But they may not be the worst thing he put himself through. Depending on where you stand on the issue, the steroids may actually be the most dangerous thing in wrestling, even worse than the drugs. If you look at photos of Dynamite from early in his career, late 70s, early 80s, he's a skinny kid. If you look at Davy Boy, he's a really skinny kid. After discovering steroids in Calgary, he got into them pretty hard. And you can start to see the changes actually uh, throughout actually his New Japan run. He actually gets between the first Tiger Mask match and uh, the last one they have. He's bulked up and he started to get definition. And it is no coincidence at all that he started to get attention from the WWF after he got more and more into it and started to get buffer and buffer and bigger and bigger. And this is the 80s. Roided Up Monsters have been around since, well, probably the 60s. Uh, but we definitely saw it, of course, with Superstar Billy Graham uh, was the first sort of roided up monster to become the champion. Uh, we saw other bodybuilder types who were obviously on the juice uh, popping up uh, in the 80s. You had Hulk Hogan, of course. The The problem wasn't necessarily steroids. And it was steroids, but it wasn't necessarily steroids. It was the fact that that was considered the look and the look was considered more important than the work. Now, if you said, you know, the work was the important thing, that being a great wrestler was far more important than what you looked like than having that roided out look. Well, that's one thing. I, I kind of get that. But it's a complete other thing when talentless stiffs on roids are getting, you know, top-notch jobs. And I'm not talking about Hogan. Hogan was a, I guess, talented stiff but there are other guys, certainly. Uh, you could argue Junkyard Dog, for example. If you take a guy like Paul Orndorff, big roid user, big guy, great worker, great talker, uh, didn't get a chance to do much talking, sadly. But if you look at him, if he hadn't had roids, he still would have had a good career. If the look hadn't been so important, he still would have been able to compete because he was a great worker. And Dynamite was an amazing worker. Let's let's not take anything away from him. But he took a shortcut in going the steroid route. And, you know, at that point, if you didn't take that shortcut, you might not have a career. And that's sort of the danger of steroids, is that it makes it difficult for anyone to work within the system. The, the fact that Dynamite had so many injuries and got so heavy into drugs and so heavy into roids is possibly the saddest story in all of wrestling. And let's also face it. He was a dick. Uh, the, the stuff that his ex-wife details him having done just not almost inhuman, just wretched. And that's part of what the drugs can do him, but it's also part of him not being able to compete any longer and certainly not compete at the dynamite kid level of wrestling. 
And that's a classic trap. It's a classic problem of super talented people can't handle not being able to be super talented anymore. And that's a shame. Tiger Mask got hurt eventually and had to take some time off. And then he quit. I'm kind of fuzzy on this story. I know he eventually ended up in UWF, which was Akira Maeda's uh, semi-shoot stiff group. He worked with them on and off. He was hard to work with. And this is another problem of classic with super talented guys is that they think they're bigger than the scene that they're in. He wrote a book. It was sort of a tell-all. Still held back a little bit, but it was was seen as bad news, and that got him blackballed from a lot of groups. But he could still find work. Maybe not permanent work. <laughs> not that he probably wanted it. But he still showed up on shows well into the 90s. Uh, and I think he even occasionally wrestles today. All Japan Pro Wrestling bought the rights to the Tiger Mask uh, gimmick. And they gave it to a young guy named Matsuharu Misawa, Mitsuharu Misawa. And he was every bit as good as Sayama was. I will will say this. Watching Tiger Mask work, Tiger Mask 2 work matches, it's obvious that this guy is going to be a huge star in a very different way. And he was slightly bigger than Sayama. But when you see him do his moves, he's not as, he's not as fast. He's not as fast freakishly straight ahead, but he works a more all Japan style. And finally, when he actually loses the mask, he takes the mask off in the middle of a match. He has his partner, uh, Toshaki Kawada, take his mask off. It's almost night and day. He was working one style. He was working this sort of junior heavyweight, almost ready to rule the world style. And he takes off the mask and he finishes the match and I can't remember for the life of me who it was against. I want to say it was two Americans, but I have no recollection. I just watched this the other day, too. Uh, who, who it was against. But they take off his mask. And it's night and day. After that, he's working all Japan main event style. And I think like a month later, he took on uh, Jumbo Tsuruda in the match that made Misawa the superstar he would become. But he was sort of trapped in the gimmick, and that's a very, very interesting note. With Sayama, the gimmick gave him the ability to go out and do these spectacular things. Under Misawa, at first it may have done that, but then the second part of his run as Tiger Mask, and he was, I believe, the second longest serving Tiger Mask, it felt like it was holding him back towards the end. A few years later, I think uh, 1992, three? Maybe even a little earlier, a third Tiger Mask, this time in New Japan, is Koji Kanemoto, is given the mask. He doesn't have a very long run, I think maybe two years. Uh, he's okay. He's not great. Under the mask, at least. Uh, they unmask him, and he has a series of really good matches in the late 90s and early 2000s. He sort of... Uh, Kanemoto and uh, Shinjiro Itani have a wonderful series of matches, and they're, they're both very good. Um, but Kanemoto also has great matches with uh, El Samurai, Liger, you can pretty much name it. And he was he was a guy who could have been, had he stayed Tiger Mask, he may have been able to do what Miss Sawa did. And they probably pulled him off because people didn't see him as, as living up to the Tiger Mask dream. And I, I can kind of understand why. His matches aren't great, but they're good. The fourth Tiger Mask has been around for more than 20 years. 
And he mostly worked for Michinoku Pro. He also worked for New Japan and uh, All Japan and all sorts of places. But he has some great... He is... To me, he is what Tiger Mask should be. He's a solid worker. He's a sometimes spectacular worker. He's fast, but not super fast. But here's the thing. If you take Tiger Mask 4 and put him in 1983, he's the best in the world. You take Tiger Mask 4 and you put him in 1997 to today. I think he actually started in 95, but he's just one out of a sea of guys like that. You have the great the great Sasuke, uh, Super Delphin, all these guys he was working with, Gran Naniwa, were all working his speed, his sort of his style. And while there's still some definite stylistic things that Tiger Mask is great uh, at sort of setting himself apart. He really was just a sea of flyers at this point because the first Tiger Mask has set the table for that change. The interesting thing is that there is a fifth Tiger Mask. I don't know much about him. I haven't seen any of his matches, but uh, if you're going to see one match from each Tiger Mask for the first Tiger Mask, see his match, the uh, August 5th match, 1983 with Dynamite Kid. That tells you everything you need to know about Tiger Mask. He's that good in it. For the second Tiger Mask, I would watch... He had a great match with Kaniyaki Kobayashi that was just spectacularly good. It really does show how great the second Tiger Mask was. And it's, it's easy to understand because Misawa would become... I believe the Japanese wrestler of the nineties and had what I believe is to this day, possibly the greatest match in history. The 2003 match against Kenta Kobashi third tiger mask. I don't really know what his greatest match would have been. I think he had one that was really good against Liger, but really it's hard to find his matches. Actually the fourth tiger mask, you could take any number of them. Um, there's one, he had a good match with Marafuji, who is uh, all Japan. Uh, just a great match. I believe it was part of the Super J Cup that Marafuji won. Really worth watching. It's seeking out. It's on the list. It's on the playlist. And the fifth Tiger Mask, who the hell knows? I know nothing about him. But here you have this great thing. Dynamite Kid, of course, went on to the WWF as first as Bret Hart's partner. I didn't realize that uh, for a couple of matches. Then he ended up teaming with his cousin, Davey Boy Smith, becoming the British Bulldogs. Eventually he got hurt in 1988, which led him deeper into drugs and steroids. He leaves WWF, goes back to Calgary for a while. I believe he comes back to WWF briefly after that, but he mostly works Japan. And at one point he's working, uh, in all Japan with Johnny Smith, good matches, still a decent worker, not able to do everything he used to do and having massive blowups with management. His final match was 1996 at a show called These Days. It's famous for a 10-man tag team match with uh, the Kayantai, and then there's Grand Hamada and all these guys. And Grand Hamada had some great matches with uh, Tiger Mask, one of which is also on the playlist. His match, I believe, was him and maybe it was Mark Rollerball Rocco. Uh, but I can't remember exactly who, but Tiger Mask was in the match as well. And it was a good match. It wasn't a great match. It was a good match. But part of the thing about having good matches is that they're just moments in time. After that, he had he had some major health issues, ended up in the wheelchair, had a stroke recently, I think 2010, maybe a little later. And in a lot of ways, people see his as a sad story. 
Here was a guy with all the promise in the world who ended up broken down in a wheelchair partly because of what he gave entertaining the world. There's another thought that here's a guy who ended up in a wheelchair because of all the drugs he did. There's another thought that here's a guy who ended up in a wheelchair because of all the steroids he did, which made it possible for him to get the attention of people so that he could go out and have the matches that he did that ended up breaking down his body. All these are true. They're all factors. They all contribute. What would have happened if Dynamite had never found roids? That's a good question. What would have happened if he had never, if Jake Roberts had never given him speed? We don't know. We can never know. It's a shame because I really think he might have become the best long-term worker in history. He never would have been Shawn Michaels. That's something that is really kind of, in a way, sad. Without Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid and guys like Kobayashi uh, and later Liger, without those guys, you don't get the sort of second wave guys. Um, Liger is a part of that, but uh, guys like El Samurai, guys like Chris Benoit, and Chris Benoit is hugely important. I know he's sort of written out of history and, you know, yeah, the guy's a monster, but he brought the Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid dynamic to the main events, to the heavyweight side. Even though he was a small guy, him, Eddie Guerrero, uh, Chris Jericho, they, they were the reasons why you could get the super high work rate flying matches in the main event. If you look at even Randy Savage, who was a decent flyer in his time, or Ricky Steamboat, they worked a significantly different style than they would have, or even what they did, uh, when they were juniors. Benoit didn't. Guerrero didn't. Jericho did a little bit. Uh, you can see very much differences between his, when he was a uh, cruiserweight in WCW and his uh, world champion stuff in WWE. But really, honestly... Benoit is the breakthrough, and Benoit is a direct descendant of the style of Dynamite Kid. Bret Hart is to a degree as well. Uh, they sort of came up together. Uh, they worked against one another in Calgary a lot, but... And Bret still says that Dynamite Kid is the best he's ever seen in the ring. Interesting point. But this feud is hugely important in changing the way wrestling happens. And you got to watch this match. It's so good. Um, if you know anything about 80s wrestling, like watch this match and then go watch something like, uh, I'll give you a good one for homework. Watch something like Hulk Hogan versus Dr. D. David Schultz. That's fairly typical of main, ev of main event uh, heavyweight wrestling at that point. Night and day. Huge differences. Okay, so what's next? Well, You'll have already either listened to or are about to listen to the Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard should have won match of the year show. Uh, give that another listen. Next week, we're going to have sort of two things. It's my birthday week, so I'm going to do multiple episodes. But two episodes that I know are going to happen. The rest are going to be surprises even to me. Uh, one is going to be on the only match from Mexico ever to win match of the year, and that's Atlantis versus Viano 3. Uh, and there's a reason why that match won, and it's really good. 
but then we're going to watch a match I've never watched all the way through. And that is Kenta Kobashi versus Samoa Joe in New York. I am excited. Also, I'm hoping to do two things coming up. Uh, probably not for next week, but down the line. I want to do an interview. Uh, setting up for some shows happening in my hometown of Santa Clara, California and Gilroy, California. Garlic capital of the world. A couple of shows are going to be happening and I want to get some interviews with folks who are going to be on those shows. Second one is going to be another should have won. And this time we're going to look at a WWF match that was not only amazing, but was on a show with one of the most amazing matches of all time. And that's Owen Hart versus Bret Hart. And I'm going to argue that that was the match of the year for to for 1994 but that's next week or the week after all right thanks for listening guys see ya